0: Has anyone here ever had a broken heart? (laughs) You know, when some enchanted evening turns into one dark and stormy night. When that someone special who once lit up your life suddenly drops the bomb. Perhaps Elizabeth Barrett Browning should have written a sequel to her famous sonnet, it could begin with, how have you hurt me? Let me count the ways. <laughs> We're here tonight for some healing of our broken hearts. Benique Moget was born in Galway, on the west coast of beautiful Ireland, and now lives in Dublin, where she works in private practice as a psychoanalytical psychotherapist. Educated in Dublin, London, and Zurich, She graduated from training in analytical psychotherapy with the Association for Group and Individual Psychotherapy in London. She has written several books, including Reclaiming the Father, The Search for Wholeness in Men, Women, and Children, Reclaiming the Spirituality of Birth, and The Wise Woman and the Little Girl, Poems of Love and Loss. In her most recent book, Love in the Time of Broken Heart, she explains her method, Healing from Within, which considers the woundings of love as sacred initiations, initiations which can lead us to soul growth. Tonight, we are going to learn how to accept those old wounds from love's past in order to move forward into a healthier, happier, and hopefully more loving future. Turning at last, that dark and stormy night, into a brand new day. Please join me in welcoming Benique Mojé.
1: Hi, hello. Um, I'm so happy to be here, and thank you so much for the wonderful introduction, and for the warm welcome, and for Young Atlanta for inviting me to speak. I have for a long time been drawn, for some reason, to the southern states, and I, Tennessee Williams, all of this is just like with me a lot, and so I've only come from Ireland two days ago, so I'm a little bit still trying to catch up but I'm really happy to be here. Um, I think that what I really want to do before showing you some um, some slides that I have is just to really talk to you about how I came to, to write the book and how I came to this work. I, I am a therapist. I trained in London a long time ago. My initial um, if you like, my initial love was was I was very involved in childbirth and in in healing mothers or helping mothers to heal from birthing experiences that were traumatic in some way, and uh, trying to highlight the formative impact of life in the womb. Um, in my training, uh, I was always drawn to the Jungian side of things because it seemed to me that Jung gives us. A map, if you like, for growth. A map for transcendence. A map for moving forward. And that, in some way, uh, if we don't have this, we can get lost and stuck in our wounds and and not move on. Um, after I wrote the first book, my first book, "Songs from the Womb," which is reclaiming the spirituality of birth, published in America under that title. Um, I wrote about the father because men were kind of left out of the picture and it seemed also that for there to be a wholeness the, the child the, the 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 mother and the child have have always been highlighted quite rightly in a sense in terms of the formation of the child and the the uh, the impact of early life but the father also being very important and in a time when not so, I, in Ireland we're catching up with America, but the statistics were up to 50% of children were born without the active presence of fathers. Uh, that And with the advent of divorce, divorce has only been in Ireland about 15 years, which is kind of outdated for you to hear that. But, you know, in our country it's still... Um, a kind of new thing. So, uh, meaning that, that fathers were often marginalized and children lost contact with them, etc. So, the book Reclaiming Father looks very much at the impact of father in early life and his importance, primarily in helping the child make his way and separate out from mother. So, that was my second book, and in a sense, it was sort of mother father, it was a sense of wholeness. And then it seemed to me because in a way how I work very much and I write very much from myself, from my own heart and from my own life and, and my practice, but also my own personal experience. And it seemed to me at some level also that we needed to look at how um, the inner marriage, at how 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 we are in relation in relationships, how we function, what are the influences that make us who we are. And, and how can we heal? How can we move forward and heal some of the things that in our life we we have found difficult? Um, also, it seemed to me that the the new age consciousness, which of course is no longer new age, it's middle-aged, I guess, but the, 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 the consciousness of, of healing our wounds, of, of moving forward, of... Uh, being able to acknowledge that we're hurt and that we need to move forward. Um, in some way there was a narcissistic quality to it because it's tied to a, per- a sense of personal entitlement. I want this. I deserve this. Rather than a sense of compassion, a sense of open heart, a sense of how can I love more. So. You know, most people in my office would talk about not being loved or being let down or why can't I find the right person? Uh, Why do I always fall for the same man over and over, the same type of person that's just going to walk out of, whatever it is. Okay. So my challenge would be, well, how much are you able to love? So when I was writing this book, the, basically the, the, the thing that threw me into this book was my, an, a personal experience of my own, of total, utter heartbreak, where I just went off into the desert in Arizona, which I love, and, and immersed myself in the desert, and in, I went to the Krishna, one of the Krishnamurti centers in um, Ojai in California. And, I slowly started coming back to myself in the space on my own. And, and I learned so much how... That's when I learned that heartbreak can throw us into this place of inner wholeness. That before we were projecting out there, if you love me, then I'm whole. If I can find somebody to give me love, then I'm whole. But actually, love is inside us, but we forget that, you see. We put it out there always. If I get this, I'll be happy. If I get that, I'll be happy. But it's actually inside. And sometimes the experience of heartbreak is what can actually throw us into this inner journey, where we can find that. And so I took myself off with the idea of writing this book for a month, for six weeks, to the highest peak of the Sierra Nevadas in Spain, and uh, to a kind of very peaceful and quiet place. and. I bought with me some books, and, but it wasn't psychology that, that informed me. It wasn't all the books on relationships, on psychology, on healing. It was actually poetry, the sacred poetry of the mystics, particularly Rumi, uh, John of the Cross, uh, Teresa of Avila, and there, there's such a beautiful map of the inner marriage about healing, about union, union within, union with God, in this case, uh, Teresa. Teresa was not, as you know, I'm sure those of you who are familiar with her work, she was not a stuffy old nun. She was a beautiful Spanish girl whose father packed her off to the convent because he was afraid she'd get pregnant. So there is huge passion in her writing. John of the Cross, also a young man, huge passion in his writing and we can see the 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 um, the path to inner wholeness there how we have to work through we have to work through um, the unconscious if you want to use psychological language we have to work through the darker side we have to work through our wounds we have to work through all our demons in order to come to some place of union within and we meet the inner lover that's what we meet so that was a long roundabout way of sort of Giving you an introduction as to how I came to to writing this book, um, and then it seemed to me that the next step from here is healing. How do we go about healing? Because in a way, there's another inner mar- there's another marriage that has to happen, and that's the marriage between psychology and spirituality. Because my own work is very informed not just by Jung, obviously by Jungian psychology, but also by Spiritual truths by increasingly working uh, on, a, on a spiritual level, working with energies, all of this um, and but there there is uh, a tendency or there can be a tendency also in that whole area to have a split, so that the ones in the spiritual camp might be a little bit in danger of flying off, uh, it, becoming maybe um, Promising change uh, without struggle, if you see what I mean, without endurance, without working through it. And the psychologist camp could be stuck in the wounds, in the narcissistic element. So we have to somehow marry that. And that's what I try and do in in my work also, uh, is to, and I feel that there's more to do in that whole area, to bring the two things together, so we're not stuck in either camp and that we can actually understand the bottom line is that our wounds are conduits to healing. If there's one thing I want you to take away with you, it's that. Our wounds are conduits to healing. And of course, those of us who are familiar with the the myth of the the wounded healer and Chiron will, will, will be familiar with that, because it is the only way. It's not by escaping the wounds. It's actually... By learning, going inside and learning what what the healing power is in there. And again, I use myself very much in my work, and you'll you know from uh, those of you that have read the book, or if you do read the book, that, you know, for me, let's say, my learning, and I know that my... I came into the world extremely, extremely premature and not expected to live, and I was not robust and and no question of any bonding because I was in an incubator for two months so I was bonding presumably with with what what do little babies bond with but what did that do that was maybe my first experience of abandonment because I believe our soul I believe our soul journey is connected to certain things we need to learn, certain challenges we need to work through in our lives. And so what happens is we're born into a situation that I believe we choose in another uh, life or, or uh, in another place where we will have the greatest opportunity to learn. So being alone in an incubator, that, affects, that affected me, yes. Uh, no, no, um, no, how would you call it, no... Um, no template for what intimacy is, um, then my next experience of abandonment would have been my divorce or heartbreak. You know, moving on like that. So what, what, what is that saying? It's saying that at some level our soul will, 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 will bring alive, will bring towards us opportunities for growth. And we can choose whether we take those opportunities or not. And the bottom line about the thing about abandonment is when was I going to learn not to abandon myself? Okay, so my therapist used to say, but I want you to take that little girl and hug her and tell her you love her. You don't want to hear that. You want your therapist to do that for you and you want other people to do that for you. So, But that is the bottom line. When do you learn... Not to abandon yourself. So I learned the hard way also, and like the rest of you, I. But I've learned, if you like, to really nurture myself and to love who I am for who I am, with my flaws. But that is also a hard thing. Um, going back to love, uh, when I was writing this book too, and. It became clear to me with my work also, and in my life, and in my friends, and everybody I could see, that deep down, there is an awful lot of our problem seems to be that we find it hard to accept love. Is it at bottom that we feel unworthy? What is it? Is it to do with the separation from the divine? That at some level, we're not connected with our divine natures? I think so. Because that's one of the things that we find in heartbreak. When we can connect with that part of us that helps us to heal. Because it's all inside us. But we lose it. We lose it. I mean, I went to a very Catholic school. And when I'm talking about the divine and, and, and the spiritual, I'm not talking about religious. Because religious is dogmatized spirituality, as I see it. It is not uh, spirituality the way I talk about it, but I, I grew up, I was sent to a convent school in Ireland like most people, but that wasn't where I learned about my own inner beauty. No, you were taught how shameful you are generally, or you know how you have to you're not taught about your own beauty. You're, 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 you're basically taught more uh, to be ashamed. So and how hard you have to work to to be worthy so anyway um, okay so shall I show you would you like to see the the presentation now and we'll go through it and 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 um, sorry I'm going to have to use my glasses because I can't quite see the pitfalls of reaching certain age okay so now so okay so this, as you can see, beautiful uh, image of um, eros and psyche, and of course, what I love about it is the is, is just the dynamic and the circular movement, the, the the beauty of that. But it's the connection there. So as as you know, you know, the inner marriage refers to the balance of the masculine and feminine energies within. I mean, it's it's basically a joining together of parts of us. Um, and it's sometimes referred to as the royal marriage. But the thing to know about it, is, or to understand, is that it's essential to the spiritual, to our spiritual well-being, at some level, to feel this inner marriage. And Jung, of course, talks about it in terms of individuation. And it's something that we're all um, destined to work with in the human journey and to get to. Of the inner marriage, of course, the poets say, when two souls have finally found each other, there is established between them a union which begins on earth and continues forever in heaven. And the mystics say, if you want to make progress on the path and ascend to the places you've longed for, the important thing is not to think too much, but to love much. And so do best whatever awakens you to love. Of course, that's Saint Teresa. When I was... um, now I have a problem with talking. Uh, the Irish, I know we have the gift of the gab, and so I'm so nervous, I was so nervous, I kept saying two by I kept saying, "What'll I say? What'll I start? Will I start with this Will I start?" But once I start, then I find it hard to stop. So what <laughs> what, what I really mean is that bit about um, the important thing is not to think much, but to love much last year I went to Mexico to do some training in shamanism and um, medicinal health curandero medicine and um, I I was heartbroken at that time because somebody I loved very very much died unexpectedly so I was kind of in grief and I and I went there and and I was burnt out tired and totally closed down heart chakra you know like this And, of course, I wasn't five minutes in the place when the healers were saying, come here, and uh, you need to start feeling, you need to express, me? But I express my feelings, I know all about that. (laughs) You're up here, they said, you're up here, you're up here, stop thinking, stop thinking. So I went through a series of treatments or or, um, uh, work with these uh, people, which had nothing to do with thinking. So I know that at some level we can get caught up in that, the old ego. You know, okay, I'll work through this, and I'll work through that, and then I'll get to this bit, and that means I've got to wholeness. No, you have to feel it. So um, uh, it's something that we often forget. Okay, so individuation. Now, um, I hope I have this right. No, I have to point it here. Okay, that's just another little image of the two little butterflies we saw somewhere, and I just thought it was amazing the way they were kind of connecting together and in a sort of natural way. Um, so, And that is actually, would you believe, it's a sculpture of, um, on one of the islands called Inishark, which is opposite Cleggan Bay, where, where I live, in Connemara. And I think it's rather beautiful. It's like mandala shape, isn't it? With the with the, the because of course in, in the island communities in the west of Ireland, uh, uh, f- fishing and water and death by water is a big thing. So and drowning. And I just thought that was rather rather beautiful in terms of in terms of wholeness. Because the inner marriage is about the search for wholeness all the time. And and in a way, you could say, outer union with a partner is merely a reflection of our need for inner union. So it's 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 as in so with that. And the drive to relate in love is the outer manifestation of that. So um, OK, so first principles, if you like. Just wrote those down. Um, I believe that our impulse to love another soul is part of our spiritual journey and our inner search for wholeness. When I was in my first analysis way back, I'm not going to tell you how long, but a long time ago, um, my analysts used to say, you do your best work in relationship, outer relationship, because I kept talking about my relationship. Some people do and some people don't, but if you've got the sun in the seventh, as I do, then you, you, you tend to focus on the other, But, um, and then the other first principle is that our adult relationships bear the mark of our first relationship with our parents. Certainly, the birthing experience, and that's an area I've worked a lot with, life in the womb, birthing experience, first attachment patterns. These are the templates. Now, that doesn't mean that if we've had um, a very difficult Experience as I did and didn't have any bonding, that we should just throw ourselves in the dustbin. No, it means that we have a gift somewhere in that wound that we need to learn about so that we can somehow overcome that. I mean, some of the greatest healers and the greatest um, humanitarian people are people who've suffered tremendously, but it's the suffering in a sense that brings you to that place. And thirdly, a broken heart is a sacred initiation with opportunities for spiritual growth. The heartbreak itself brings you to the wholeness of your heart. I went to Jerusalem. Again, I write about that in the book. Um, but, well, I was, the, the book was gestating in me, but it wasn't written or anything at that point. Um, and I remember going, I don't know if anybody's ever been to Jerusalem, but I went to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is said, I'm a Christian, where Jesus is said to have had his agony in the garden. It is the most beautiful, tiny little space on the Mount of Olives with these old, old olive trees. And there is a little church built on the spot where Jesus spent his night, if you like. And inside, there's an altar in the shape of a tear because, of course, he cried, bitterly. And I went in there, I was alone, and suddenly a big gang of tourists came and da-da-da, talk, talk, camera, camera, and then I waited till they were all gone and sat down on my own inside there. And I cried. My heart just broke. I just somehow was a, was, there was some opening in me, something I could connect with there. So, I'm saying that about the connection, the spiritual connection somehow, because his heart was broken. Okay, so um, let's move on here. Okay, but this is just really, um, you know, that at, at another level, relationship is about learning about otherness, and that at some level we have to be able to do that in order to, um, become whole ourselves to learn how separate we are how the other person is separate and that they can be separate and the consciousness of relating to another being opens us up to this union and wholeness that is not possible any other way because you can go away into the desert or you can go away to the mountains and decide to live alone and yes you can grow and you can become conscious but come back to relationship. And that consciousness is constantly challenged. What? You, you know, the other person will challenge you. So it's, and, and the growth somehow seems to be in this consciousness of the other. I remember um, Thomas More coming to Dublin and something he said about that love was the, the chaffing together of differences about his mother and his father and when he rang his mother and uh, mother was irritated, well, you know your father is doing this again. But in other words, that there was love in that. Well, you know, he's doing something I don't like. But, you know, at the same time, there is this learning of the other and acceptance of the other somehow. Okay. Um, the taking. This is my nephew, <laughs> in his marriage a couple of years ago. The, take, it's the taking of vows, and, and at some level, the taking of vows is an essential part of individuation. because And Jung writes of this, of the necessity of this vow as a step to inner wholeness. It's a symbolic act which transcends the individual, the taking of a vow, because you're taking it outside of yourself to something else. To, for Rilke, it was to the sacred muse. In a marriage, it's to your partner, to the person you have chosen. Um, so, uh, but uh, uh, Jung talks about this as the necessity of this vow, as a way, as a step towards inner wholeness. He says, the unrelated human being lacks wholeness, for he cannot achieve wholeness only through the soul. And the soul cannot exist without its other side, which is always found in a you. Wholeness is a combination of I and you. And these show themselves to be parts of a transcendent unity whose nature can only be grasped symbolically, as in the symbols of the rose, the wheel, or the, uh, the mystic marriage of the sun and moon. Okay. So, uh, to just carry on about the vow, really, it's essentially uh, essential to the sense of wholeness. And uh, you see, again, you know, with the writings of the mystics, you see, I mean, the, this the, this drive to, for love and for wholeness, was con- connecting with God, with the divine, um, with with a sense of transcendence. So love, I really discovered this so much writing the book and in that experience myself. It's a human and divine passion. It it transcends the individual. And, you know, in a time when we're really living in a fragmented age, love mends the separated heart of man, the separated part of us. It mends it somehow. It brings things to wholeness. Because you feel different, don't you? when you really love you feel different somehow everything is in good shape and the world uh, optimism and whatever but we live in this you know like fragmented world where um everything is in parts it's hard to get a sense of wholeness there's a, you know in Ireland where we we've adopted some of the American consumer quick fix thing where, you know, grab and go and all this business. There's a funny story about uh, forgive me, about an American uh, tourist who was in the south of Ireland um, in, in County Kerry and he went into a bar somewhere in one of the little towns and said, could he have a coffee to go? <laughs> she just looked at him and said, excuse me, where are you going? <laughs> he said, would you? She said, she said, "Would you sit down and have your coffee?" So you know it's all? I've <laughs> got to go here, i got to go here. And we forget. OK, just more, really, on the whole um, divine aspect of love. Um, And we we have tended to think of it as being uh, separated somehow, but we need to remember this, because at all times, you know, in my own practice, I know that so often you're working with someone and they're in the worst relationship they could ever be in, and you're wishing they could just get rid of this person and and grow up and whatever. But at the same time... (laughs) At the same time, you know also that you need to find out their, the, the soul connection that they have. the soul. So uh, I remember I had this particular beautiful girl, and uh, anyway, she had this sort of situation happening where he obviously was so bad for her. So I, I said to her, you know, tell me what you love about him, because then you find out what's there in her, what it is that she's projected onto him. He was an exotic kind of, the exotic bird part of her. He was a foreign Caribbean man, and she was an Irish woman, a rugby player who only came to the country every now and again. But, um, but what I'm saying is, y- y- if you dismiss that, you- you're losing the soul aspect. You're losing her projection, wh- where her soul wants to go, and her sense of wholeness. She needed to connect with that part of herself. Some bad person has left the room. <laughs> <laughs> Here really is just the, the, um, the serious side of it, you know, that I've spoken about. In a time of increasing emotional isolation, the search for wholeness is even more urgent. I mean, we... Go to lectures, we go on workshops, we buy books on relationships, on how to keep them, how to stay in them, how to break up from them, how, you know. We do this, and yet at some level, we live in a time, no, but seriously, we live in a time where we can have practically anything we want when we want it, except the one thing money can't buy, which is happiness. And mental illness or psychological pain has never been higher, in a world when we have everything. So we have done some, there's something where we're not getting that we need to connect with again. Now, the projection of love out there is what makes us unhappy at some level. Because we think it's somewhere else. And that's what the experience of heartbreak can do, is it can bring you back to yourself. If you go from one relationship into the next, you're never going to find that. Because you haven't gone into your own soul. So the time alone is so important. Time on your own, time connecting with the inner, your inner soul. Love and healing. Well, of course, and it's part of the title of of, of my lecture, but healing, you see, love offers us the opportunity for healing. And relationship, particularly intimate relationship, offers us a huge opportunity for growth. And very often love awakens the wounds of childhood so that we have the opportunity to grow through that. Now some of us are too scared maybe at different times in our lives because it's not easy. But at some level it is one of the most powerful ways of healing and uh, you know i was talking just before about the human and divine aspects of love Well, we've tended to separate those in ourselves that's where we're needing to come back to wholeness so it's our inner wholeness that we're looking to heal but of course generally in relationship it's projected into the person that we love and of course the more we see that love is are we projected into the person out there? We know we're projecting all the qualities of our, our soul, that our soul wants and needs. And that person leaves us, or they die, or something happens. And then we're left empty and alone. So we need to learn to connect with what's inside. Because one thing I learned from that experience I had was that... I learned how huge my heart is and how much I have a capacity to love and how I really learned about unconditional love and it took me, it took me straight to, to connect with my spiritual nature much more than anything else could ever have. So um, the healing aspect of love also is that it mends, as I said, the separated part of man. How do we achieve wholeness? Well, we achieve it through integrating opposites. And, again, when I was writing the book, uh, you know, the idea of a lost wholeness, every soul knows about some, we all have some sense of wholeness, and of having lost it. And at certain times, and, and certain psychology, psychologists would still believe and have it that we Um, What we are looking for is the lost wholeness of our prenatal life. But we know now from all the studies and the work that I've been doing and, and many, many other people that many of us suffer a lot in the womb. It's not the nirvana that we thought. So, yes, I think it is our first experience of physical separation, birth. But I think it tears away at an earlier se- separation. Maybe the separation from the divine at some level. It takes us into another place. So, so longing—the longing for a soulmate. How many of us have said, "Oh, if only I could meet the right one"? <laughs> there is one out there. Actually, there are quite a few. I think there are. I think we are in soul groups, and that usually there are. Quite a few soulmates out there. So there isn't just one. However, um, this by Rumi I think is very beautiful. His words The minute I heard my first love story, I started looking for you, not knowing how blind that was. Lovers don't finally meet somewhere, they're in each other all along. And of course, that is uh, Rilke. So the inner marriage. How do we come to the inner marriage? How do we know how the balance is inside us, where the feminine and masculine inside us lie? I remember going to um, an astrologer a long time ago. I'm quite into astrology and all this other. I think that they all combine together somehow. And she said to me, she said, you have, for a woman who uh, has been twice divorced, I know that's nothing in America, but in Ireland it is. She said, you have within your chart a perfect inner marriage, inner union. Your mother and father were perfectly united at your conception. Now, that doesn't always happen, um, but that's what she said in me. So it's almost as though your quest is to find that in your life. I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, she showed me where the planets were and the Mars and Venus and and all of this so um, so how so we come to the inner marriage we come to the the we come into life already with you see it used to be thought that life in the womb was but the baby was born a blank slate and life in the womb was just like wonderful now we know that and Jung said this man brings with him at birth the ground plan of his nature the archetypal heritage The history of our family is there. The history of our mothers, our fathers, our our ancestors, the mythic history, the cultural history. It's not that we are going to our life is mapped out for us. It's more that we are predisposed, as Jung explains it well, to experience life in a particular way. The archetypes will come through in a particular way. They'll be humanized for us by our parents. The growing child already has a budding plan. Yes, he does. I mean, I've had three babies, and they're all different. And we all know, those of us that have children and grown babies, that um, they all have their own personalities, their own traits. Um, Families have... Histories and families have stories, and each child plays a particular role in the story of the family. One of the things that I um, really learned when I was writing the book as well, and the last part of the book speaks about this, is that we all live out of stories. And uh, tomorrow we might, if we have time, uh, find some connection. with. I don't know how that happened. Did I press something? Okay. Anyway, the mother humanizes the archetype of mother for the child. Mm -hmm. See, the archetypes, as you know, are not, they they don't contain anything, but they're humanized for us by our folks, our our parents. So the mother comes through, uh, uh, the child learns, you learn about uh, uh, mother through your experience of your mother. That's what a mother is. And the same with the father. And the mother brings different energies than the father. The feminine, the feminine energies are very different. And different parts of us the anima, the animus they're different energies um, the father is now this little chap is now in his second year in Oxford in, in London uh, he was about an hour old there I used to I had, ran a birth centre in London and I used to um, go to a lot of births with couples and help them have the baby and uh, we all, I had some beautiful pictures of them but, uh, so anyway, Father humanizes, obviously, the archetype of the Father. And again, brings different energies. The animus is, is uh, connected with many things, but the fire energy, the penetrative energy, the energy of uh, forward movement, that's actually a picture of, in our country, we have um, St. John's Feast, which is the 20-something of January the twenty something, And everybody has a bonfire in the country, on the rocks. You know, you see them on the islands and the, the fires. It goes back, way back. I mean, you probably know this from the... Um, so the the fires are all raging around. So that's a picture of my brother's one, one year. And I just thought it really, at some level, um, talks about the, the energy of the father, which is so different from the energy of the, of the mother. The animus energy and the... In the, in the um, Okay, I've moved way beyond now here. I just have to... So, again, I like to... I call these architects of love because the anima and the animus are... I mean, everybody, I'm sure, knows what they are. I don't really need to describe them, but they're they're the, the archetypal energies within us of the masculine and the feminine. And for us women, it's very much... Um, <clears throat> the picture of the of our fathers, of the experience of of how we experienced the earliest in our earliest life, the masculine, usually through our fathers, brothers also, teachers, uncles, but father primarily, and um, the anima in men, mother, experience with mother. And so they can lie in different balance. They can be in a different balance. You find out where, where does love sit inside you. When I'm working with, 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 with people, I, I ask a lot about, obviously we go back into early life. But I also ask a question, how did you experience your mother? How did you experience your father? What kind of a man was he? What kind of, a, But also, how did you experience your parents' relationship together? Did you feel your father loved your mother? Or did you feel she was always reaching for him and he wasn't there? Or was it the other way around? You know, how was it? Because the, how does the child learn about love? Learns through looking, through, through seeing, through feeling, through how he sees his parents relate. So for me, I would say, my mother, for example, I would have experienced her as a very wounded woman. My father was very, is a very gifted God bless him, he was 100 last month, my father. So, yeah, he's still with us. But he was a man very gifted. He's a writer, and very gifted in, um, in, in, in you know, in an academic sense. And my mother was a very feeling woman. So, so the balance of that energy in the, in the start, I would have been very attracted to men who were very intellectually stimulating, you know um so so what, that's what i'm saying about the balance so you, you you kind of come into it in a certain way and of course the dance of love is there i love that it's beautiful isn't it i really love it I, I i've had it for a long time um and so we're always looking for balance anyway we're always looking for wholeness whatever way we do it so if we're choosing the same old Partner over a type of person over and over again who's doing who won't make a commitment that's there or something like that that's telling us something about ourselves that we need to look at where is it that we're not making a commitment where is are we ready for the commitment if we were we'd meet somebody who was ready. Do you know it's like like that now, early life this is a huge area for me, but i'm not going to be going into it tonight because um It's the formative impact of life in the womb and the birth experience. And that already the child, and we know this from a long time now, and and the studies are increasing, but we know also, the child is already extremely sophisticated at birth, already has all sorts of experiences in the womb, picks up mother's feelings, thoughts and feelings, doesn't have an ego to separate out, What's his and not or hers and not hers. So um, the child is very impacted by life in the womb, whether it's wanted, not wanted, um, whether mother feels loved by father, all sorts of studies. And I worked at, you know, I had a birth center for about eight years before, and I was training at the same time then in, um, in my psychotherapy. But uh, it was very clear that the mothers who felt very loved or supported or held. They had easier labors and, and bonded better with their babies and um, the connection was easier for them because traditionally speaking, father's role was as guardian of the space. Birthing was a thing that women did together and men would be guarding the space. So... Um, So the very first experiences are so formative, are so important. If you, if you, are, if you come into the world and you're drugged, because if, you, if your mother is drugged, the drug will go through you. Um, or you're pulled out by forceps. Or you, whatever the experience is, you're learning something. You're learning about the first initiation into life. I was born by caesarean, which is kind of too common nowadays. And sometimes it's necessary. It was necessary in my case. And you have to be able to marry the benefits of technology, which are undoubted, with care for the sanctity of the soul, for the soul and for... The 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 mother and and the child, Um, if you're born by caesarean, and your mother hasn't gone into had normal labour, just you're in and then you you're in and then you're out. Okay, so what does that teach you? It teaches you some something. Somehow you don't have the same sense of a successful initiation as some baby who works his way out. Because look at nature. Nature is designed to force its way up, to grow. So therefore, and that's not saying that, you know, if you're born by cesarean again, that you're an awful, you know, that you might as well give up. No, it means (laughs) what it does. It means that it's to have an awareness of where that energy might lie in you, that you haven't been birthed in the same way. In my training, you know, I've been training, my training was quite a long time ago, but, you know, you go through different trainings along the way. I would have done not the rebirthing that uh, is commonly known as rebirthing, but regression therapy and all of this. And I would have had to re-experience that uh, proper birth because I got so severely claustrophobic during the um, regression training that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't fly in a plane. I remember r- ringing Roger Woolger <laughs> over in, um, in, in New York, and he was saying, get the group together, get the group together, and they, you can just you know do it, do the, re- do, do the birthing. And that's what actually happened, because I couldn't get into a plane, I couldn't get into an elevator, I couldn't do anything, because my birth trauma, if you like, had been triggered. So the group we got together, and basically, I still remember it very well. Um, there were about we were all in training together. We were all therapists, and uh, they got into a sort of a. I knew you see if you work with the body, if you work therapeutically, you will kind of have a sense of this. But I knew organically what I needed, so they got into a space, squashing me, if you like where I needed, I could feel my body, I needed, so I pushed and pushed and pushed and whatever the process was, I believe it went on for a long time, I don't remember because I was in it and I just know that I felt totally different when it was over and I I had worked through something. So those energies are in us somewhere of the birthing. Okay, why have I jumped to this? Well, like I said earlier, at some level, I really discovered this when I was writing this book and doing my own work. We live out of stories. So if the, sto- if the family story is about wounded women and absent fathers, or... Um, what else could it be? Or somehow... Um, give me one. I don't know. I can't think. But you know what I mean. There is a kind of a history... That, that can be organic and that can carry on in your life. A, a clue to, to what story you might be energetically connected to would be if you think back to when you were a child, if there was a story that you loved, that you, that you really wanted to read and that you felt somehow some resonance. Like it could be Rapunzel, it could be... Um, the Little Mermaid was mine. Um, I mean, there's lots of them. But that will give you a clue somehow as to where that resonance is in with you. Of course, you know the story of the Little Mermaid, don't you? It's very sad, really. You know the story of the Little Mermaid? <coughs> you don't know the story of the Little Mermaid? <laughs> the Little Mermaid, well, I won't tell it because if, if, um, I thought everybody would know that. The Little Mermaid, Hans Christian Andersen. She, she's, um, she's a mermaid, and, uh, but she falls in love, basically, with the prince you know human prince she comes to she saves him from a shipwreck and she sits on the rock and sees him and falls in love with him but of course she can't marry him because she doesn't have any legs so she goes to the sea witch and the sea witch says I can give you legs but for a terrible price Oh, what's that I don't mind I'll do it I love him well you have to give me your most prized possession which was her voice so they take her voice the witch takes her voice she takes she had a beautiful singing voice and gives her legs and so then she's a woman and she can connect with the prince and fall in love with him but it doesn't happen in the end well there are different versions of the story and uh so and she ends up um not turning into foam and you know they it's quite complicated but the, but the moral of the story is it's about the impossibility of that inner union somehow. You know, that it's impossible to get your prince, or to have love, or to find your other half without giving up your most precious possession, your voice. In other words, losing, losing your own um, sense of yourself, your boundaries, whatever. So, but living out of stories, so at some level when we're living out of stories, it makes, us a, it makes us not connected. We're living out of belief systems. Maybe if I talk about it as belief systems, we have a belief system, oh, I'm not worthy of love, or, well, you know, I'm not very lucky with love, or um, I wasn't cut out for it, or whatever the story might be, the belief system. And they're stronger than you think. And we can, you know, we can, become, we can become totally part of our own drama. You know, and often we just have to get out of our own way and realize that we're not uh, doing ourselves any favor and that we have belief systems that we somehow need to say, hang on a minute, that's not it you know, and, and come out of it. This is, um, of course, this is just Amor and Psyche, so it's when uh, when she, in the myth of Amor and Psyche, when she finally, um, he tells her that, uh, you know that story, that myth, yes? He tells her that she, he, she, she must never uh, look to see who he is because he comes to her at night. He's Eros, he's the son of Aphrodite, and um, she, her curiosity overcomes her, and she lights the lamp, and a oil falls on his shoulder, wakes him up, he runs away. So she loses him. So this is heartbreak. And as she loses him, she then has to go through a journey of initiation with, to complete several tasks in order to connect with him again. Of course, this is all symbolic of the inner journey to wholeness. And all the ta- each task, and it would be too long to go into them tonight, but the, in the, my book I, I outline them, but each task uh, is, is a psychological. She has to psychologically accomplish each task. It's part of the growth uh, to come to that place. <coughs> now, so heartbreak, yes. Uh, I talked about this a little earlier, about the sense of having to go into the desert, our own inner desert. When I was in Arizona, I mean, I just, I just love the desert somehow. I don't know what it is about it, but maybe it's because Ireland doesn't have deserts <laughs> and it's very green and wet, but there's something magical about it. There, the sense of essence, there's nothing there, and just beautiful, and yet there's everything there, plants, birds, but, you know, it's just that, the nighttime in the desert, and, and you come to your own inner self, somehow and so something was happening to me in the desert I realized I was healing slowly um, but I talk about it in the book in 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 the sense of that it's somehow it, it's often part of our journey to wholeness is to have a desert experience because in the desert experience we, we, we are then without the person on which we have projected everything and we have to come back to ourselves because that's all there is. But if, if we were still, if we didn't go to the desert and went straight into another situation, we wouldn't have had that experience. So the desert is, is one of the experiences. And the exile, well, a beautiful, I think a beautiful story is that of the ugly duckling, the fairy story of the ugly duckling also, because that is about the search for belonging. And tomorrow I'm going to talk a bit about the orphan, you know, the inner archetypes that are at work within us. Well, the inner child we are all familiar with. But there are different faces to the inner child. The inner child can be the orphan child, can be the divine child, can be the magical child, the wounded child. We're very familiar with the wounded child because generally that's what we come through, we come out with. But, I mean, the orphan child, many of us don't feel part of our birth family. I mean, we're part of them, but spiritually we don't feel connected. So the search for belonging, and of course the ugly duckling is about that. It's persistence, persistence in the face of uh, adversity and endurance. And that's one of the things I think that we need to go back to that we've lost, the ability to endure. And not to try and get out of situations. I think that's one of the most important things today. Because this whole consumer quick fix thing and, uh, you know, go to the doctor, get rid of it. Get this taken out. We have to somehow be able to learn to endure. Because endurance builds, I believe, spiritual muscle helps us somehow It gives depth to us so we're back really to where we started which is awakening the inner lover after this period of time in the dark night when we go through this and it's not a short journey it takes as long as it takes and for everybody it's different but there's no shortcuts to it that is the thing so We need to just be patient, which again is something that we're not, I mean, I'm not gifted with patience. That's one of the things I find the hardest. But in general, I think in modern life, we find it hard to be patient. We want everything now. Well, when is this, when am I going to get healed? You know, when is this going to go? How long have I, (laughs) you think you've done it and then you're back in it again. Oh, no, I have to go through this again. I love this poem. Go deeper than love, for the soul has greater depth. Love is like the grass, but the heart is deep wild rock, molten yet dense and permanent. Go down to your deep old heart and lose sight of yourself. And lose sight of me, the me whom, that should be whom you so turbulently loved, it's written wrong. Let us lose sight of ourselves and break the mirrors. For the fierce curve of our lives is moving Again, to the depths, out of sight, in the deep, living heart. What time is it? That is a bit of subliminal advertising. It isn't even subliminal, I'm afraid. <laughs> but um, I think that's the last slide I have there. Can I um, can I read you a poem? before we finish and then I think I'd like to uh, we're going to have a little break and then I really would like to talk with you or for you to ask me questions and I just have to read your poem you know Rilke, to me Rilke is one of the greatest love poets and of course Emily Dickinson never knew physical love but her poetry is magnificent has anybody read it? it's just absolutely magnificent the love poets are often the ones that or the spiritual ones, or the, um, but anyway, this is a very old poem, said to be the first. It was originally in the Irish language. It's now in English. I don't have it in Irish anyway. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't appreciate it in the Irish language. It's, it's um, said to be the first poem written as he, by the chief poet of the Milesians as he stepped ashore to take possession of the land of Ireland. I am the wind which breathes upon the sea. I am the wave of the ocean. I am the murmur of the billows. I am the ox of seven combats. I am the vulture upon the rocks. And I am a beam of the sun. I am the fairest of plants. I am the wild boar in valor. I am the salmon in the water. I am a lake in the plain. I am a world of knowledge. I am the point of the lance of battle. I am the god that created the fire in the head. Thank you.